There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is a podcast from the Society for General Microbiology, which was recorded at a session they sponsored at the 2010 Times Cheltenham Science Festival. Through genetic manipulation, or GM as it's also known, scientists can create microbes that provide us with medicines, foods and vaccines, as well as animals that can be used as model organisms for the study of important human diseases. But genetically manipulating and using organisms in this way is one of the most controversial scientific developments of recent times. So researchers Cormac Garhan, Ann Thompson and Chris Lever have each highlighted one practical application of a genetically modified microorganism that is currently being researched or developed in this way. The session is chaired by me, Chris Smith, otherwise known as the Naked Scientist from Cambridge University, and we asked the audience to decide when is GM acceptable. Up first is Cormac Garhan from the University of Cork to describe how microbes can be turned into better vaccines. Thank you, Chris, and thanks to the organisers for inviting me to give this presentation. Um, so I'm going to discuss today uh, genetically modified microorganisms. So basically looking at uh, bacteria and viruses that we can manipulate the DNA of these organisms to provide enhanced functions. And what I mean by enhanced functions is enhanced functions in medicine, in the production of, of major drugs, or in their use as vaccines themselves. So um, this is a technology that's been around for many, many years, but it's always operated in laboratories around the world, in microbiology labs, and probably reached a, a landmark in the late 1970s with the introduction and the development, uh, the establishment of the company Genentech. And what Genentech did was uh, they were able to clone the gene encoding human insulin into the bacterium E. coli. These bacteria that contain the insulin gene of course, can now produce the protein insulin, and this protein can be harvested and used as, as a medicine. This was a, a major step forward in drug production and revolutionized drug production. Of course, these bacteria are housed in fermentation vats, which actually contain large numbers of the E. coli, and in the pharmaceutical plant, they harvest the insulin drug. The bacteria are never released into the, into the environment. And what I want to talk to you today um, is about the next step in the development of modified microorganisms, which is to use these microorganisms themselves as improved vaccines. So it's the microorganism itself that you would receive as a vaccine and how we can enhance the potential of these bacteria to vaccinate individuals. And also I want to finish by discussing some of the safety measures to prevent the spread of these genetically modified microorganisms uh, in nature. Now, this is the, the challenge that faces us. These are three diseases that cause massive uh, morbidity in cases of disease and mortality worldwide. So HIV, for instance, there are estimates of up to 60 million uh, infected people worldwide with HIV, 11,000 new HIV infections per day. So these are infections that could be prevented by an effective vaccine against HIV. Similarly, with malaria, 500 million clinical cases of malaria uh, per annum, a huge amount of, of illness. 
and a million deaths due to malaria. And the, the figures for tuberculosis are staggering in that we have 2 billion people infected worldwide. That's a third of the world's population are chronically infected with tuberculosis. 3 million deaths, 600,000 people die per week of TB, and that's, that's the capacity of the, of the Emirates Stadium in, in London, just to give you an, an example of sort of numbers we're talking about. So you might think, well, we do have a vaccine against tuberculosis, and indeed we do. We have the BCG vaccine, which is very good at preventing childhood infection. So BCG works well in children to prevent the onset of childhood tuberculosis and meningitis. But it clearly is not effective enough to prevent adult uh, disease. So this has led a number of researchers around the world to look at how we could potentially enhance the existing vaccine. So the BCG vaccine is a live bacterial strain, but um, groups in California and elsewhere have carried out genetic modification of this vaccine. They put in a gene called the AG85 gene, which produces a protein that stimulates the immune system. So we're now producing a vaccine strain which gives much higher levels of this protein and therefore gives much greater levels of immunity in individuals. So here we're this group have created a vaccine strain which is much better than the existing strain and has the potential to prevent the onset of, of adult, adult disease. And this is entering phase three clinical trials now in, in, in human patients. So this is a, a simple method for improving the immunity from an existing safe vaccine. And one legitimate concern is that what happens about the release of these organisms into, into nature? In my group in UCC and in Cork, we're looking at measures that may prevent the spread of genetically modified microorganisms in the environment. So we're taking a vaccine strain, uh, similar to the vaccine strain that I've just described. We're interested in, in actually deleting a specific gene, gene X, and we can replace this gene by our, with our gene of interest, the AG85 gene. But the, the point here is that we can replace this essential gene, gene X. We're basically deleting this from the strain. So this bacterium can no longer now make an essential chemical for growth. I'm just calling this chemical X. And will only grow if, if this chemical is added to the, to the medium. So in other words, we've created a, a relatively sick strain of this, of this microorganism. It will only grow if you add this chemical to the medium, and it will not grow in nature. So if this is released into the environment, it will not grow because this particular chemical is very limiting in the environment. So this is a safety measure by which we can produce large amounts of the, of the vaccine strain in a lab, but if it is released into the environment, it, it, it doesn't grow. So we are addressing some of, the, some of these issues and some of your concerns. So I just want to sum up by saying that normal vaccine approaches have failed for a number of different diseases which cause huge morbidity and mortality worldwide. So we do not have a HIV vaccine. We do not have an effective malaria vaccine. There's no vaccine for hepatitis C. The TB vaccine, as I've showed, can be certainly improved upon. But genetic modification allows, increases our ability to improve these vaccines and to create new vaccines where other approaches have failed. And I want to put in the caveat, obviously, that evaluation of safety and efficacy is obviously of paramount importance, and limitation of environmental spread is essential, and we can use the, the procedures that I've just told you about to try and enhance the safety of these, of these medicines. So I thank you for, for listening, and I'll, I'll take any questions on, the, on, on this. Uh, you mentioned uh, the prevention of releasing it into uh, general circulation of these vaccines or these uh, microorganisms. 
What is your greatest fear, in fact, that might happen to some of these microorganisms? I'm not specifically meaning the one you've just talked about, but mm -hmm. just generally. The specific fears are integration of some of these genes into other bacteria, potentially. These are very rare events, and you can actually prevent these, these events by choosing the genetic information very carefully. So some, some types of DNA move quite easily between bacteria, and these are called plasmids or transposons. If you use other approaches to integrate your gene of interest into the genome of the organism, then the likelihood of, of any spread between bacteria is extremely low, and, and scientists have shown this in the laboratory. There, there are ways of, of, of greatly limiting the spread of these, of, of these genes in the environment to, to a state where they're almost nil. Are there any external control systems? Is there any control on labs? Mm -hmm. External control before they allow these organisms to go out into the public? There are extremely good controls in place. If you want to do a clinical trial on, in this material, it's extremely difficult to, to prove that you have the controls in place. There's a huge amount of, um, of scrutiny on these trials when they're, when they're performed. And in fact, some of these trials are performed under contained, in contained facilities where patients may be given the vaccine or the, or the, the live drug, but they're, they're not allowed to leave the premises without um, the material being autoclaved. There are strict guidelines imposed by the FDA and the European medicines uh, agencies. It's also worth bearing in mind that when working with genetically modified organisms in, say, a research environment or a university setting, there will be a committee who have to sanction the modification that the researchers are proposing and sign it off as acceptable and also sign off the fact that the person is taking appropriate steps to limit the possibility of a spread of that organism out into the environment to make sure that it doesn't escape, if you like, from the laboratory. Mm -hmm. and, and there will be a graded response. So if we are wanting to play around with Ebola, for example, this is slightly more severe and constraining than if you want to play around with something like E. coli, which has already been manipulated in such a way that it can't really persist in a human gut, for example. Yeah, so it's called a risk assessment. Okay, um, we must move on, but could I ask you to now, if we could see those questions again, please, now consider the following questions for us. Would you consider the use of GM that has been described to you by Cormac to be acceptable? Yes, maybe, but you'd like to know more, or no? Okay, so it sounds like you're pretty pro. Two-thirds of the people in this room are arguing that this seems like an acceptable approach to GM. Let's see the next question, please. If it was offered to you, would you use it? Vote yes, maybe, perhaps with a bit more information, or no? And the results, please? You're a trusting lot, aren't you? <laughs> Two-thirds of the audience say they would. A third say, well, maybe with a bit more information. And very few of you say, no, you've done a good job, Cormac. Now, it's a fair estimate that the majority of people in this room will contribute to the atmosphere something like four to ten tonnes of carbon dioxide every year based on whether you went on holiday this year or whether Iceland saw to that and contributed to your CO2 footprint on your behalf, or whether you came by train, car, or whatever. But there's a very big interest in trying to tap into nature's toolkit in order to cut down our carbon footprint and use some of what nature's given us to make better fuels and better energy products. And Anne Thompson from the University of Cambridge has been looking at this very technology. Anne, welcome. Right, thanks very much for the introduction, Chris. Um, now, 
I look into two contentious areas of research. Um, I did my PhD in modifying a high-temperature type of bacteria um, to produce fuel ethanol to replace petrol. And now I work in climate change mitigation research at Cambridge University. And um, biofuels, of course, is, uh, have, have become a contentious issue, whether they really are actually environmentally friendly. And actually, this is... I want to sort of help you look through why genetically modified organisms will help make more environmentally friendly um, types of biofuels. Now, the way that biofuels get their energy is um, basically from the sun. In photosynthesis, plants make sugars out of um, carbon dioxide. So that's a good thing. They're taking carbon dioxide out of the um, atmosphere. That's brilliant. So um, they are made, manufacturing, they're transported to where they're pumped into your car. The car burns it and produces carbon dioxide, which goes back to the plants, makes more sugars, made into more bioethanol. Now, at the moment, bioethanol is made from yeast, one of the oldest types of biotechnology. Yeast has a slight drawback, though. Um, it can only use the edible parts of the plants, so the edible sugars the corn that we could all eat as a food source. And one of the arguments against bioethanol at the moment is that we're potentially taking away an important source of food which will disadvantage especially developing countries. Now, the reason that you start looking at other organisms like thermophiles, which are the high-temperature bacteria, is that they can use the leafy and the stalky plants, parts of the plant as well. So they're non-edible, and so you're not taking material out of the food chain. And in fact, you can use waste material from a food crop. So the food goes to the humans, the waste material gets converted by the thermophiles into ethanol. And as you can see, if you use the corn plant, the um, thermophiles will make a larger amount of ethanol than the yeast will. Thermophiles also have other benefits, is that... Um, they are grown at higher temperatures than yeast, which has a number of industrial benefits, which means that you actually have to use less energy for cooling and stirring, and so it decreases the amount of carbon dioxide that's um, produced during the production of the biofuels themselves, starting to make them more environmentally friendly. But then also because you use a higher percentage of the plant to make ethanol, you get a better yield, you actually then need to use um, less land to grow crops. Now, one of the biggest um, issues with biofuels is the amount of land that's projected needed to be used for them. And so um, using more of the crop means you'll use less land. So that's great. Thanks, thermophiles. Now, thermophiles are a really safe um, organism to use. Ours was isolated from a lovely steaming compost heap. Compost heaps can get up to 75 degrees um, centigrade. The minimum temperature that the thermophiles that we used will grow at is 45 degrees. And so obviously that's not going to be found in many environments um, in the world. They're generally regarded as safe, and that's one of the um, classifications that the um, environmental authorities have put on them. Basically, you could eat them. They wouldn't taste very nice because they also produce small amounts of organic acid that don't taste horrible. And even if they did escape, in order to genetically modify them, we actually had to use 
what's called a non-sporulating form of them. Basically, the wild type survives when it's not over 45 degrees um, by making a little coat for itself, a little spore. But you can get forms which don't make spores if you grow them for long enough in the lab, and they naturally have a disrupted gene for the sporulation ability. And we check that just by DNA sequencing. So it's not actually a modification. We just grow them until they're no longer sporulating. And the non-sporulating form cannot survive in the environment. Now, we also use a safe method of genetic modification with these bacteria. Not all forms of genetic, genetic modification are equal. A lot of the worries I know people have expressed to me when they find out what I do is about introducing foreign DNA into organisms. Now, we didn't introduce foreign DNA into organisms. What we did is we simply doubled its ethanol-producing capacity by adding another copy of the ethanol gene. And it's its own DNA, and so it's a self-modification. What you can also do is increase the strength of what's called the promoter, and that's a section of DNA in front of the gene that makes the um, ethanol-producing protein, and that makes more of the ethanol-producing protein just simply by changing a few bases. It helps the cell's machinery to know to make more of that copy of the um, DNA and the protein and so therefore you can get double the amount of the ethanol than the wild type and so then you can imagine what would happen if you took two copies of that super strong promoter with the ethanol gene you get four units um, of alcohol basically it's a safe organism that can't survive in the environment it reduces the energy of your ethanol making process and that's what I did my PhD in, and I was very proud. And so thanks very much. I'm happy to accept any questions. Uh, are there special types of plants that one could actually then grow, which actually have a high sugar content in order to create the ethanol? Yes, um, there are specific crops that are looking into for what's called the second-generation ethanol, um, such as miscanthus. But... From um, the point of view of the way we were looking at it, it was we were concentrating on agricultural waste because you're always going to get that. We're going to be need to be fed. We've got to do something with agricultural waste. What's happening to straw in this country, for example? Now you're not allowed to burn it. Why don't we make it into bioethanol? You mentioned the um, land use um, issue of the thermophiles requiring less land because um, it makes better use of the, the crops. I wondered if you've done calculations in terms of uh, the land area required to meet the renewable fuels obligation of 15% um, with the use of thermophiles, um, how much that would be in uh, no, hect not yet. hectare? No, not yet. But also, um, I used to work for a company active in Guildford called TMO Renewables, and I know that they're making those kinds of calculations, which are, of course, commercially sensitive. Um, is the process aerobic or anaerobic? It's um, anaerobic, much like the yeast process. Is the process being uh, commercially used or is it likely to be commercially used in the near future? There is a um, pilot plant at the moment um, in Guildford, which um, I've been to, and that runs this organism um, to prove to companies that it is a commercially viable process. However... There is industrial concern about 
making a wholesale change over to bioethanol because of the weak support that it's had from the government? Uh, I've read an account that the amount of energy required, taking every factor into account, the amount of energy required to produce one unit of ethanol takes more than one unit of ethanol. Yes, I've seen those life cycle analyses, and some of them are works of fiction. It all depends which life you take of the, um, what you say, from the field to the wheel. Now, one of the big problems with life cycle analyses is that there's something very fuzzy called indirect land, land use change, which is taken into account. Now, this is something that's not agreed in science and social science circles. It's something people guess at, and it might not necessarily be reality. So this, this gives a sort of a false um, in, increase in energy and carbon dioxide emissions from biofuels. And let's see if you've done your job. <laughs> Can we have those questions up, please? So do you think that the use of the GM is acceptable? So two-thirds of the people in the room think that this is good. It's interesting that more people were supportive of drugs than are supportive of this. Can we have the next question, please? So would you use this? If you were the farmer or you were the consumer, would you want to see this in the field next to your house or on your own farm? One, yes. Two, maybe. Three, definitely not. Okay. And again, quite strong support, but not everybody. So some people think that there are obviously some risks. And the last question, please. Should we be funding this? Vote one if you think this needs further funding and investment. It's worthy of it. Two, maybe. Three, definitely not. Most people are broadly supportive. Three quarters of think we need to invest in this, which is probably true, because if you consider how much we put out in terms of just carbon into the atmosphere, something like 10 to 12 billion tonnes of carbon is ejected into the atmosphere through our activities every single year. A huge amount of that from heating houses and from transport. So we do need to find ways to mitigate that because we think that will have a direct impact on climate in the future. And the CO2, once it goes into the air, has a lifetime legacy of perhaps two to 400 years of impacting on climate, which is a long old legacy. Well, one other area which is very important is, of course, agriculture. We all need to eat. The world's population is growing. In fact, the world's population is growing at the rate of about 1% per year. Now, 1% until recently, if you'd got 1% return on your bank balance, wouldn't have seemed very attractive. Most people would have turned their noses up. But nowadays, 1% is pretty attractive, isn't it? But actually, 1% growth translates into a doubling of the population every 70 years, which means that with 6.8 billion people on Earth right now, in 70 years' time, we're going to be pushing 15 billion people, assuming we carry on at the trajectory we're on. But the reality is, with 6.8 billion of us here, we're actually consuming resources at the rate of two planet Earths, not just one. And as the population continues to grow in the way we think it will, and with climate change and the effects of that manifest on top, reducing the amount of land that we think there will be available, therefore there will be mass movements of people, there will be mass movements of animals, and there will be less land to use to feed, clothe, and provide fuel for everybody. So the solution needs to be a scientific one, one way or another, and we think that agriculture could play a very important role. And here to convince us that that's the case from University of Oxford, Chris Lee. Thank you very much indeed. Um, I've got a quotation I'd like to give you, first of all. It's a Byzantine proverb. He who has bread may have troubles. He who lacks it only has one. 
you may have troubles, but there are a billion people who suffer from malnutrition, poverty, and are starving in the world, and there are about two and a half billion, almost half the world's population, living on less than $2 a day. The other thing I'd say is the only renewable source of energy, renewable and finite as far as I know, certainly in the lifetimes I'd care to consider, is the sun. And the only organisms capable of capturing that energy and turning it into the food, fuels and polymers, which we all depend upon, are green plants. They also do something else. They scrub the atmosphere of CO2, which has increased about 30% in the last 60 years, and they return oxygen to the environment. So they've been pretty important. Now, the other thing is agriculture. Agriculture has been incredibly successful. At the beginning of the last century, there are about 1.8 billion people on this earth. And as we've just heard, there are now 6.8 billion. Agriculture has been very successful. We could actually feed everyone in the earth, on the earth at the moment, with the available reserves. We couldn't feed them at the level which we expect, where we only spend about 12 to 15% of our household income on food, but we could feed them. There are a lot of political and other problems why we don't feed them. But the increase in population is going to increase from 6.8 billion to the median UN estimate of 9 billion by 2050. I won't be here, but some of you in the audience, if I could see you, probably will. Certainly our children and our children's children will be. Now, why has agriculture been successful? Well, it's probably the most important activity that man undertakes or people undertake. In 100 generations, 5,000 years, it was the basis of modern civilization. Indeed, the availability of food, water, and energy are extremely important, are certainly the basis and will be the basis of global conflict in the future. Agriculture has been successful because it's dependent on a number of things. It's dependent on mechanization, the ability to till the soil more efficiently. It's dependent on the provision of nitrogen and phosphate fertilizer based on the Harbour Bosch progress. It's dependent on the use of agrochemicals, and despite the extensive use of agrochemicals, we still lose 40% of all our crops to pests and diseases, fungi, viruses, insects, uh, and so on. It's also dependent on genetics and plant breeding, the ability to understand the way in which you can cross plants and produce improved crop varieties. We are in this world dependent on about eight major crops. The ones you've heard about are maize and wheat and soybean, canola, oilseed, rape, and a few rice, of course, a few like that. These are all crops, are man's invention. The wild-type forms of these crops look nothing like you've seen before. Now, I've mentioned this challenge. We've got to feed, in the next 40 years, 50 years, an additional two to two and a half billion people. We're going to have to do this on the same layer of area of land with decreased inputs of water, with reduced inputs of chemical, because modern agriculturalists cost a lot. We've lost 20% of the soil which has been used for agriculture due to erosion and pollution. We've lost 20% of our agricultural land due to overgrazing. It's been turned into marginal land. We've destroyed 33% of our forests, which are involved in scrubbing the air of CO2. So how are we going to essentially double the amount of food in the next 40 years, do this on the same land mass with reduced chemical inputs and with less water? Well, there are a number of technologies. I will not tell you that GM genetic modification is a silver bullet. 
I will tell you that we've got to evaluate all appropriate technologies. The year-on-year -year increases in yield, which used to be 2 or 3% historically in the major crop plants, is plateauing, certainly for things like wheat and others. The other problem is that in many parts of the world, those that are going to be most affected by climate change, such as sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, and probably parts of South America, productivity is very low. And the biggest increase in productivity there would be giving the population improved varieties, which are better able to cope with the climate, that could benefit from the input of a certain amount of nitrogen fertilizer. And this type of aid is far better than giving people food. How can GM play a role? Well, because of the advance of science the last 25 years, we've now got a very good idea about what the genetic blueprint of a number of important plants are, particularly important crop plants. So we know that plants have about the same number of genes as we do, about 30,000, and those genes control all aspects of plant productivity. The efficiency of something called photosynthesis and capturing the sun's energy, the efficiency of water use, the efficiency of making those products which we want to eat, which are basically proteins, fats, and sugars, or starch, and so on. Conventional breeding, when you make cross two plants and then select and select and select and evaluate, which can take 12 to 15 years, has been successful, but we're becoming limited. We're now starting to understand the role of many genes, the 30,000 genes which plants contain. A lot of the important traits that we want to introduce, such as insect resistance, ability to resist things such as herbicides, because we can't live without agriculture with a certain amount of chemical input because it's been so successful and because it works. And unfortunately, as much as I'd like organic agriculture to be able to feed us all, it just can't although it can make a major contribution, we're starting to find out that one or several genes can affect other important traits. And given climate change, which will have relatively little effect on us, except we'll have a lot more extreme and violent weather events, in those parts of the world where the biggest increases in population are going to increase, where more than the majority of the world, more than 50% of the world lives in urban conurbations at the moment, the billion people who are malnourished, of which 30,000 children die every day of malnourishment, dependent in part upon poverty, is in Africa, is in Southeast Asia. And that's where all these big increases in population are going to increase. So we've just got the ability to understand the genes, and it may be one, it may be a number of genes, which if you could select them by conventional breeding would be good, but if you can use genetic modification where you can take a gene about which you know all the information, you know what benefits it might do, you can put it into the plant, you can evaluate whether it's successful in the plant of choice, which will probably be maize and rice and so on, but could be in so-called orphan crops such as sorghum and cassava and others and bananas, which many other parts of the world are dependent upon. If you can take that genetic information and introduce it by genetic modification with appropriate regulation, this can make an important contribution. I just want to end by saying that most of the genes that have been utilized so far have been developed by multinational corporations because that's, they're in the business of doing that. Public good plant breeding has been far less well-funded. At the moment, 14 million farmers worldwide, the vast majority in excess of 10 million are subsistence farmers in developing countries. It's in about 25 countries are developing these technologies. 
I am not aware, and I served on the GM Science Review for HM Government, and I keep up to date, there are no proven or known health effects. There are no environmental effects which also have had negative impacts, despite what you read in the literature. GM is but one technology. GM and organic would be great if you could get plants, because most of the plants we grow cannot fix nitrogen from the air, like the legumes can, plants which improve water use efficiency, plants which be, can be used for biofuels, plants which are already being phase two tested for vaccine production, you have the capability of informed and precise intervention improving crop productivity. So I'm suggesting that this is a technology which will have an increasing role. The majority of the world is already using this technology for a whole variety of reasons. The overfed developed countries in Europe and UK is denying people access to the evaluation of this technology. Thank you. I remain skeptical. I've been looking at this for 20 years, both sides of the question. And I really feel that GM is going up a blind alley. It's sad that so much money is going into GM when the equivalent amount of money into other methods, conventional marker-assisted selection, for instance, uh, might produce better results quicker. Um, I didn't mention marker-assisted, but again, our understanding of the genetic blueprint will allow that. Marker-assisted breeding is extremely important. It means, means if you know the specific genes or you have a specific DNA identifier of the genes which are important for developing certain traits, certain crop improvement technologies, you can use these to follow the inheritance of these when you make crosses and selections. But I, I agree with you. Productivity in sub-Saharan Africa and other parts of the world is very much dependent on the uh, lack of fertilizer, uh, the uh, lack of water and so on. And these problems are, are going to increase with climate change, particularly in those parts of the world. I believe that there has been very little input into the improvement of so-called orphan crops, which are very important, such as cassava, such as sorghum, the cowpea. What's happening nowadays is that a variety of organizations, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Gates, are putting technology, putting money into improving these crops, and a lot of the, the patenting, which commercial organizations have got to protect their investment, which is billions, has already been given free. Examples which are going into production and which will be uh, available for free next year are things such as golden rice, which is improved for vitamin A, improved zinc, improved folate, because a significant proportion of people in these developing countries are short of micronutrients, which are vital for all aspects of development uh, and so on. So I would agree with you. I think that more attention through public investment must be put into improving and evaluating these technologies. If they're not effective and there are things better, I would be all before it. But this is but one tool in the toolbox, as people say. Um, you've obviously alluded to the importance of water efficiency uh, as part of the um, uh, future population of genetically modified uh, crops. Um, from my viewpoint, uh, there's an enormous amount of water inefficiency in the current irrigation procedures of conventional crops, and it strikes me that there could be a bigger merit in putting bigger effort into water efficiency using conventional crops 
rather than focusing on the water efficiency of genetically modified crops. I'd be interested in your comments on that. Uh, I would certainly agree. People using conventional and GM approaches are looking at ways of improving crops which use water more efficiently by a whole variety of techniques I don't have time to go into. But what's even more important, that the drought conditions, which are a major problem in places such as Australia and, uh, and Africa, it's not having a plant that resists drought, it's a plant which can adapt to drought so that when the rains do come, it will then yield again. So it's drought tolerance we're looking at, and there will be genetic and other approaches. Now again, in a country such as our own, you can think of appropriate irrigation methods, drip-fed irrigation and so on, and in high-value crops where you can get a good value, that happens very well. But in rain-fed agriculture where there's no opportunity of irrigation, let alone anything else, this becomes a lot more difficult. But I agree with you, once we start to understand the range of genes which can improve water use efficiency and also improve the efficiency of fertilizer use and nitrogen because a lot of the fertilizer that's put on the ground in whatever form ends up in the waterways, pollutes it, eutrophication. If you can get a lot of your major crops so they could fix their own or improve the ability with which they extract with what you put on the soil, so much the better. What I'd like to do is first of all get your opinion on the voting because I'd also like to save a bit of time for us to include everybody in some more general discussion at the end. So let's just react to what Chris has told us. First of all, what do you think about GM agriculture, GM crops? Do you agree with this? Yes, maybe, with a bit more regulation or some more additional information or controls, or no, we should not be using GM technology in this way. Okay, so it's pretty much similar to what we've seen before, with two-thirds almost of people saying that you do go with this technology, and about a third of people saying they're supportive generally but would like to see perhaps further control. And the next question, please. So would you use this? Would you eat GM crops? So two-thirds of you would quite happily munch your way through a GM carrot, but about one person in five says, well, maybe. Maybe turn your nose up. But one in five, perhaps put off. And the third question, um, should we be funding this? Does this need more money put into it? So about two-thirds of people think that this is worthy of funding and development, and about a third, again, say maybe, but perhaps we need to be focused on what we spend the money on. One person in ten in this room doesn't think we should spend more money. And this brings me to the point I was going to say, which is actually most of us are already eating these things. And, uh, in fact, BioRad, who are one of the big companies, make a wonderful kit for schools of various experiments that schoolchildren can do, including doing DNA amplifications and things. And one of their experiments is to detect genetic modification in crops. And they use Doritos as the positive control in their experiment because they're full of GM wheat, maize maize flour in making the crisps. So there you go. If anyone has any general questions for our panellists, we'd like to include a couple of those, and then we'd like to ask you one more question before we finish. So down the front here. Do you think that the Food Standards Agency's uh, use of uh, half a million pounds of taxpayers' money is a good use of that, given voluntary discussions and debates such as this? What's your view? Should we be spending taxpayers' money having consultation exercises and entities like this? Uh, some years ago, Sir David King, the ex-chief scientist, chaired um, a committee which spent two years with representation from all sectors of society, including those people who were very anti-GM, to look at the safety, both environmental and health, and a report was produced, and 
one person at a short, fairly soon into that, for their own personal reasons, resigned. I think, and there was also a very large public debate which focused around a public consultation, focus groups, um, the field-scale evaluations and so on. And I think this debate, to some extent, has been had. This FSA one, which I'm familiar with, and of course familiar that people who had vested interests like uh, Heather Wallace and others, my own personal opinion is we'd be far better putting that money into other areas. And these people resigned for purely political reasons. They're anti-globalization, they're anti-multinationals, um, uh, and they have other areas they wish to push. This doesn't mean to say that I think that scientists and all aspects of society should be involved in debate. I wish we had more scientifically literate politicians who, you know, scientists, um, you know, pr produce information as the decision is made by politicians. So, yes, I think it is a waste of money. Um, I think there are far better uses. I would like to see a more educated politicians. I'd like to encourage more dialogue with the general public who can ask in this sort of forum extended any of the questions they would wish to ask. Anne, your thoughts? I'm not sure about the um, FSA, to be honest, because biofuels and climate change are slightly outside the, the food realm. But, um, but it impacts it, on food, because if you're growing a crop yeah, for fuel, it, you're not growing a crop for food. It is important to have a debate on anything to do with genetic modification, I think, because um, one of the biggest things is people feel that they're not, they're not being informed enough. And we really do have to communicate properly with the public about what's going on. Um, just like um, having the genetically modified Doritos. I mean, um, it's something that we should know about. It's something we should be told about and it talked about and discussed openly. Comment? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I mean, uh, for uh, be very much in favour of, of, of more debate and, uh, and informing the public, obviously, of the, of the developments. If genetically modified vaccines are going to be rolled out, the public should be, should be aware of well, speaking of debate, this is a fertile topic, but please join me right now in saying a very big thank you to Chris Lever, Anne Thompson and Cormac Byrne. Thanks for listening to Breaking the GM Taboo. There are other podcasts from the Society for General Microbiology. They're on the web at www.sgm.ac.uk slash news and follow the links there for podcasts.